Welcome to episode 45 of History of the Marine Corps, the Second War of American Independence. Our last episode discussed the United States defense strategy and Britain's offensive strategy along the eastern coast of the United States and the Great Lakes. We discuss an extraordinary battle on Lake Erie between U.S. Commander Oliver Perry and British Commander Robert Barclay. This episode starts getting into troop movement throughout the United States. Bonaparte was just exiled, and now the British had additional troops to support the war across the pond. We'll briefly discuss a few battles and end with setting the stage for the attack on Washington. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Perry's victory over Barclay was welcome news to the United States, but it came at a price. The day after the battle, both countries put aside their differences and attended a joint burial of the dead officers and crew. The United States Marines fired volleys over the graves of the fallen. Three days after the battle, Commodore Perry wrote a letter to the Secretary of the Navy, expressing his sadness for Lieutenant Brooks's death. He wrote he had, quote, great pain in stating the death of Lieutenant Brooks of the Marines, unquote, and that he was a valuable and promising officer. Congress jumped on board the celebration train and passed a resolution on January 6, 1814, stating that, quote, the thanks of Congress is hereby presented to Captain Oliver Hazard Perry, and through him, to the officers, petty officers, seamen, Marines, and infantry serving as such attached to the squadron under his command for the decisive and glorious victory gained on Lake Erie on September 10th in the year 1813 over a British squadron of superior force, unquote. Congress also resolved that the President of the United States be requested to present a silver medal with like emblems and devices to the nearest male relative of Lieutenant John Brooks of the Marines. The resolution goes on to communicate, quote, the deep regret which Congress feels for the loss of Lieutenant Brooks, whose name ought to live in the recollection and affection of a gratified country, and whose conduct ought to be regarded as an example to future generations. Unquote. Congress authorized three months' pay to the Marines and infantry who served in that battle. In 1918, the United States Navy honored Lieutenant Brooks by naming a destroyer after him. While the United States celebrated the victory, Britain revisited their strategy. General Henry Proctor and his men defended Fort Malden in Ontario. With Lake Erie controlled by the United States, he decided the best move was to evacuate the fort and head east towards Lake Ontario. Tecumseh, the Native American Confederacy leader, was against this decision. He wanted to stay and fight. But Perry captured their incoming supplies of food, heavy guns, and about 200 soldiers, and Proctor was able to convince Tecumseh to retreat, with the stipulation that they would make a stand at the Thames River. As Proctor was retreating east, Perry teamed up with William Henry Harrison, commander of the Army of the Northwest, and started to track down the British. Harrison sent over 3,000 troops towards the enemy, 
with another 1,000 mounted infantry from Kentucky militia. As the United States forces closed in on Proctor, he and his men started to panic. They understood their fate. But the conduct in which Proctor and his men handled themselves disgusted Tecumseh and his Native American army. They came across as cowards, and many warriors disappeared into the trees while the British army marched forward. Some of the British soldiers followed the Native Americans. On October 5th, Harrison and his army had caught up to the British. They were 50 miles east of Detroit, on the Thames River, when the two forces met. But by this time, many of the Native American and British soldiers fled. The total strength of the British was 1,500 soldiers, 500 of which were Native Americans. This battle was short and was over in about 30 minutes. The most significant outcome of this battle was the death of Tecumseh. How Tecumseh died isn't precisely known, but there are rumors. One account claims that Richard Johnson, who would later become the ninth vice president of the United States, made the killing shot, but evidence doesn't exist that supports this theory. Tecumseh's burial site is another unknown. But the death of this warrior would impact more than just the British. He was an advocate for Native American traditions, and one of the few who was able to bring together tribes and fight against the United States for the preservation of their way of life. Proctor was able to escape with about 250 of his men. This retreat would follow Proctor back to London, and he was court-martialed for his actions on the Thames. He faced five charges failing to prevent supplies and ammunition from falling into enemy hands, causing the retreat to slow down due to carrying too much baggage, neglecting to fortify positions on the Thames, failed to prepare to meet the enemy, and failed to rally and encourage his troops. He was publicly reprimanded and suspended without rank or pay for six months, but he would never return to the army. Towards the end of 1813, Britain's additional naval resources to support the war started to pay off. British strategy blocked multiple frigates and smaller warships in port. U.S. victories at sea began to look like the army during the beginning of the war. However, there were a few exceptions, one of which was from a 27-year-old captain of the Enterprise, William Ward Burroughs II. If you've been following along or know your Marine Corps history, William Ward Burroughs was the first official commandant of the Marine Corps, and this is his son. Burroughs was just released as a prisoner of war in Barbados, and he was itching to get back to sea. His mission was to head to the coast of Maine and protect merchantmen from harassing British ships. On October 5th, the Enterprise spotted the Boxer, a British brig commanded by Samuel Blythe. They were near John's Bay, and Blythe immediately gave chase, firing at the Enterprise along the way. Burroughs managed to outrun Blythe for a few hours. At 1500, it was time for the two vessels to engage. Burroughs turned his ship, and in 20 minutes was within 30 feet of the Boxer. As the two warships lined up, they each released a broadside that caused significant damage. An 18-pound cannonball hit Blythe and killed him instantly. A musket ball found its way to Burroughs and killed him as well. 
An officer on board the ship described Burroughs' last moment. Quote, While lying on the deck, refusing to be carried below, he raised his head and requested that the flag never be struck. Unquote. With both captains dead during the first volley, the next man in charge took over and the two ships continued fighting. The intense battle lasted 15 minutes and ended with one last broadside from the Enterprise, raking the boxer. The brig was in bad shape. Masts were destroyed, riggings were gone, and the ship had taken on three feet of water. As the Enterprise got into position for a second raking, she held her fire out of mercy and waited for a British reply. The British officer in charge met with his men and decided to strike the ship's colors an hour after the battle commenced. The Enterprise caused significant damage to the boxer. Quote, Mast, sails, and spars were literally cut to pieces. Several of her guns dismounted and unfit for service. Her topgallant forecastle nearly taken off by the shot. Her boats cut to pieces and her quarters injured in proportion. Unquote. The British had four dead and 18 wounded. In contrast, the Enterprise had three dead, including Burroughs, and 14 wounded, including Marine Private John Fitzmore. Lieutenant McCall took command of the Enterprise and was welcomed with cheers as he pulled into Portland with the boxer behind him. The Portland Gazette reported, quote, The wharves and streets were lined with people on both sides. Tops of houses and windows were filled with men and women and children, unquote. When they arrived, the two captains were given funerals out of respect for their bravery and service. They were buried side by side in Portland's Eastern Cemetery and are still there today. It was a moving ceremony and brought the reality of war to the U.S. citizen, including a six-year-old Henry Longfellow who attended the funeral. As an adult, he would write a poem about his experience. The poem is titled My Lost Youth. It's a beautiful poem about his experience attending the funeral. I won't read it here, but I'll leave a link in the podcast description. Longfellow would be the first American to translate the Divine Comedy and write Paul Revere's Ride, The Song of Hiawatha, and Evangeline. The year 1813 didn't improve much for the United States. Yes, we won a few battles, but the British had the upper hand. If it weren't for the Napoleonic Wars, the outcome of some of these battles would have been a lot different. During the American Revolution, the colonies had phenomenal leaders step up and fight for our independence. But it was more than the courage of early colonists that won our freedom. Allies, specifically France, supplied resources to fight the British. Men, weapons, and money. France provided most of the financial support for the United States during the Revolution. At the end of the war, they racked up the equivalent of 100 million pounds to support the colonies. Their total debt after the war was over 250 million pounds. This debt was a significant issue for France, and the country struggled to pay their bills. The economic disaster eventually led to the financial crisis of 1786, and ultimately the French Revolution of 1789. To compare, two years after the war ended, the Department of Finance reported the United States' total debt, which included the American Revolution, 
was $43 million. France supplied a few donations during the War of 1812, but nowhere near the resources provided during the American Revolution. They were fighting their own battle, and if Britain weren't defending against Bonaparte, the War of 1812 would have been over quicker than it started. But the United States hung on to that lifeline, and Britain did not have the opportunity to take advantage of the numerous mistakes made by President Madison and his military leaders. Towards the end of 1813, Europe experienced one of the bloodiest battles of the war in Leipzig. Almost 100,000 casualties occurred during the Battle of Leipzig. The body count was so high that locals couldn't properly bury all the bodies, and corpses were visible a year after the conflict. This battle ultimately caused Napoleon to retreat back to France. But the war wasn't over yet. Britain still needed to supply forces to hold Napoleon in France, but despite the considerable amount of resources necessary to stop France, Britain still refused to negotiate with the United States. The only issue Madison had with Britain was enforcing their impressment practice on American citizens. Another country shouldn't force U.S. citizens to serve in its military. It seems reasonable by today's standards. However, this was common practice for Britain and served as the most effective recruiting tactic for the British. With Napoleon in Paris, Britain sent a letter to the Secretary of State, James Monroe, requesting negotiations. Monroe immediately replied, and the speed of his reply hinted at his desperation for ending the war. The British saw this as an opportunity to dictate the terms of this peace settlement. While Madison assembled his negotiation team and prepared to sail for Great Britain, the United States started to see more losses during 1814. Except for Lake Erie, the U.S. faced multiple defeats along the Canadian border adding to the negotiation power of Great Britain. On top of losses, manpower strength started to decline as well. Recruiting became more difficult, Congress refused to approve a draft, and militias refused to march into Canada. There was also a lack of funding, and banks started to deny the United States loans to support the war. Britain didn't face these problems, and it was only a matter of time before they had an answer for Lake Erie. In April 2014, Napoleon relinquished power. Although there were a few battles after April, the war in Europe was coming to an end. Americans had conflicting feelings about the news of Napoleon. Jefferson stated in a letter to John Adams, quote, While I rejoice for the good of mankind, to the deliverance of Europe from the havoc, which would have never ceased while Bonaparte should have lived in power, I see with anxiety the tyrant of the ocean remaining in vigor and even participating in the merit of crushing his brother tyrant, unquote. London had a different attitude, and the Times reported, quote, the reinforcements for North America all sailed last week, unquote. London was attempting to display Americans in the same light as Napoleon. They called the United States tyrants, and quote, there is no public feeling in this country stronger than indignation against the Americans. Unquote. In England, multiple newspapers followed suit, and the propaganda machine now focused their attention against the United States. Back in the U.S., Madison received news that Bonaparte was defeated. 
This outcome changed everything. Britain will now come to the U.S. in full force. As soon as Napoleon was exiled to the island of Elba, British forces in Europe diverted their attention towards the United States. Britain revised its strategy. Hit-and-run raids would still be used along the U.S.'s coast, and blockades would stay in place to prevent naval warships from entering the sea. But in addition to these already successful tactics, the new plan included two major invasions, one from the north and one from the south. The goal was to break the United States apart. The northern attack would start in Canada, move towards the United States, and convince New England to either join Canada or become an independent nation. From the south, forces would attack New Orleans and take back the Louisiana Territory, including West Florida. The British wanted the region in North America, and the War of 1812 turned into the Second War for American independence. But compared to the American Revolution, Britain would send fewer troops, about 20% less. They also decided to restructure the leadership in America, and they replaced Admiral Warren with Vice Admiral Alexander Cochrane. Cochrane served in the American Revolution and was a lot more forceful than Warren. His mission would play to his strength, and London expected him to use more dynamic attacks along the East Coast and invade Louisiana. But for the Marines, 1814 would be a heroic year. The year started with President Madison and the First Lady throwing a New Year's Day reception, and the Marine Band played in the White House for their guests. This celebration would be the last year for a while that a New Year's reception would be held in that room. The Marine Band was quite popular, and would play in multiple ceremonies throughout the year, including a large turnout for launching the new sloop of war, the Argus. Marine Captain Richard Smith commanded about 175 Marines at Sackett Harbor, and they served on board every ship on Lake Ontario. This location was a rough duty station, and keeping men in the area was difficult for both Americans and the British. President Madison attempted to improve the situation by increasing the wages for the sailors and Marines who served in the Great Lakes by 25%. On March 7th, Chauncey wrote to Jones, quote, The increased pay and bounty, I think, will ensure men for the service, and in fact, they deserve it, for they suffer much beyond what anyone can form an idea of unless they witness. We seldom have less than 20% of our whole number sick, and sometimes 30%. Within three days, we have buried seven Marines out of a corps of 180, unquote. About a month after the letter was sent, the lakes were free of ice, and both sides had to prepare for attacks. There were multiple battles on the Great Lakes, and Marines participated in many of them. The USS Peacock captured the HMS Epervier in April without losing a single life and only two wounded. The Secretary of the Navy wrote that this battle might, quote, fairly challenge any single action on record. Every officer, seaman, and marine did his duty, which is the highest compliment I could pay them, unquote. The marines on board the Wasp, commanded by Sergeant William O. Barnes, helped capture the reindeer. The damage was significant. The reindeer was set on fire and blew up in two hours. The marines did a stellar job at deterring the enemy from boarding. At the end of the battle, 
Five Americans were dead and 21 wounded. The officers and crew received medals from Congress. Quote, For the gallantry and good conduct of the officers and crew in which action determined bravery and cool intrepidity in 19 minutes obtained a decisive victory by boarding. Unquote. Marines were dispatched to multiple locations and used to help defend the British. As time went on, the chances of an attack on the nation's capital seemed inevitable. Marines were used to prepare for future engagements in Washington. Quote, the Marine force would be perfectly separate from and unconnected with the Navy and could be organized as to have one regiment of troops annexed to it, the whole under the command of an able Marine officer and a colonel with powers to correspond, not only with the general government, but with the governors of Virginia and Maryland and act in concert whenever circumstances required, unquote. On July 1st, the Secretary of the Navy guaranteed the President that 120 Marines were available to defend Washington. Those additional Marines would be helpful. Six weeks later, Secretary of State Monroe informed the President that the British had entered the Patuxent in considerable force and were landing at Benedict. On August 14th, Admiral Cochrane met with General Ross and Vice Admiral Cockburn. They met at the Potomac's mouth and discussed strategy. The British were hesitant to attack the capital. There were too many variables. The weather was poor, their men were exhausted, and they only had a force of 4,500 to take a nation's capital. But as the conversation progressed, their doubt would start to fade, and a plan was formed. The British would conduct an amphibious landing at Benedict, Maryland. They would advance to Marlborough, then to Nottingham. While ground troops were marching, the Navy would carry supplies to support the troops and destroy the American squadron. Once they destroyed the fleet, they would reconvene and discuss an attack on Washington. Marines were given orders to serve on board the defending flotilla, as well as garrison at Fort Washington. Marines were chosen explicitly for Fort Washington because of their experience in multiple disciplines. Marines were proficient in artillery warfare, naval warfare, and ground combat. These skills would come in handy when defending against attacks from land and sea. To cut off the British amphibious force, the Commandant ordered Captain Samuel Miller to, quote, immediately march a detachment consisting of Captain Alexander Severe, First Lieutenants Benjamin Richardson, William Nicole, Charles Lord, and Edmund Brooke, with the rank and file and a proportionate number of music. Unquote. The Marine Band were included in this battalion of Marines, and they marched as drummers and fifers. The battalion consisted of six officers, six sergeants, seven corporals, six musicians, and 78 privates, for a total of 103. On the 19th, Secretary of War Armstrong wrote a letter to General Winder informing him that, quote, the Marines are ready to move, unquote. Three days after Winder received the message, the Marines joined him 15 miles from Washington and 12 miles from Nottingham. The Secretary of the Navy visited the Marines, inspected them, and said, quote, the seamen and marines whose appearance and preparations for battle promised all that could be expected from cool intrepidity and a high state of discipline. 
Unquote. That same afternoon, Commodore Barney reported to the Secretary of Navy that the enemy was approaching them. Cochrane sent Captain Sir Peter Parker to attack north of Baltimore. Parker was known for his cruelty in destroying American farms and property along the Chesapeake. On the 19th and 20th, Cochrane would take his additional fleet and support British soldiers near the Potomac's mouth. Madison got wind of the landing at Benedict. He instructed defenses to be erected, but that never happened. However, the local militiamen would help, and 2,000 men set up camp about 10 miles southeast from Washington. Secretary of the Navy Jones felt that Baltimore was the main target, so he sent a force of 300 men to meet up with the Marines at Cecil Furnace. There was an intense chess match happening between the two belligerents. While the British Army marched, a British fleet would head up the Patuxent and support the Army's right flank. The U.S. Navy knew the British were coming, and Washington Navy Yard mechanics mounted two 18-pounders and three 12-pounders on field carriages and completely equipped and furnished the artillery for field service. 400 men were mustered, and they made their way towards Marlborough. There was also a flotilla waiting, but this was to serve more as a distraction. When the British were close enough, the remaining men would set fire to the ships and flee. The British would make it 15 miles from the nation's capital without facing any opposition. The U.S. Army was able to gather an additional 2,000 militiamen and move them to Upper Marlboro as well. On August 23rd, another 2,000 militiamen from Baltimore arrived in Bladensburg. Marines would be used to help defend the nation's capital as well. First Lieutenant Samuel Miller commanded the Marines at headquarters. They were trained to, quote, act either as artillerist or infantry as the service might require, unquote. The Marines took the two long 18-pounders constructed by the Navy Yard mechanics and brought it with them on their mission. Captain Samuel Miller marched to St. Leonard's Creek with his Marines and two pieces of artillery. There, the Marines waited. Back in Bladensburg, Brigadier General Winder, commander of the Baltimore militia, set up defenses along the Eastern Branch Bridge, anticipating the British would take that route. But he was wrong, and the British Army was able to march towards Bladensburg without resistance, again. Winder was meeting with President Madison at the Navy Yard when he received word that the British were near Bladensburg. Without hesitation, he rushed towards the enemy. It was time to protect the nation's capital. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for the attack on the nation's capital. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.